0: Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our February 26th, 2009 edition of the show, 5.06 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine. And uh, before we get into things, got a couple of quick reminders for you. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI Staff or Management, or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. Even though it has been one of the most powerful and disturbing chapters in the history of Western civilization... The Inquisition has been largely ignored by general historians. Best-selling author Jonathan Kirsch seeks to correct that oversight in his recently published book, The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God. In the process of shedding light on this centuries-long, horrific, gruesome, and grotesque absurdity, Kirsch comes to some interesting conclusions, the most important being that the Inquisition served as a sort of blueprint for the machinations of full-spectrum state terror as practiced in Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. Further, some of the ugly episodes of American history, such as McCarthyism and the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, also stem from this inquisitorial mindset, he concludes. And because we haven't come to terms with this dark past, we're still at it with our waterboarding Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, CIA secret prisons, etc. Jonathan Kirsch is our special guest today. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for inviting me to join you. Uh, Yeah, uh, this book has really uh, been uh, quite a uh, powerful read, and I've got plenty to talk to you about on this subject. So, first of all, um, you've made some important and useful observations with this work. Uh, What was the process that led you to study this ghastly historical institution in the first place.
1: Well, the story begins for me with the first of what are now seven books that I've written over the years about the history of religion and the history of specific religious texts. I started with the book of Genesis, and I moved forward through history. And uh, my last book before the Grand Inquisitor's Manual was a, a book about the book of Revelation, which is kind of the hard edge of the uh, biblical scriptures. It's the the book in the Bible that has the most venom and anger, uh, uh, even bloodlust. And I, as I was researching and writing about that subject, I began to bump into examples of how that uh, that particular biblical text excited violence in human history. And I was very intrigued to discover or to, to focus on the fact that the first Inquisition was not directed against uh, witches or Jews or Muslims. The first Inquisition was uh, conducted by Christians against Christians. And, and that's what really attracted my attention, that this uh, potential for violence and bloodshed that can be found in organized religion uh, it can be a completely internal process. It, it can be kind of a cannibalism within a church, within a religious community. Uh, and then from there I began to uh, to trace the, the history of the real Inquisition as it actually operated, uh, and that brought me to my book.
0: Yeah, and I have to tell you that the first few days after starting to read the your book, The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God, I was... Feeling rather disturbed and upset and actually a little depressed, Uh, did you experience an emotional ride while researching and writing this book?
1: Well, I really have to confess that I did. It's a dark chapter in human history. Uh, One of the things that I I did in the structuring of the book is that I confined all of the, the vivid description of torture and execution, which are kind of the hallmarks of the Inquisition, I confine them to a single chapter, Chapter 4, with the, with the conscious intent that if, if a reader was squeamish, they could simply skip that chapter. Uh, I, my experience has been that nobody's that squeamish, that, that this it exerts a, a demand on our imaginations, our curiosity. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's not something that can be confined to a single chapter. There's a, a, a darkness, a, a, a malevolence uh, that uh, permeates the Inquisition. The very idea of the Inquisition is an idea of one human being doing violence to another human being for nothing more than what Orwell called a thought crime.
0: Uh, yeah, and it you make an interesting point there because it it wasn't so much the chapter about the tortures and executions that really emotionally got to me. I mean, because I knew about that to some degree, but it was more just the way that it operated in this sort of full-spectrum state terror and this thing that you could not escape it and and the way that they operated and, and uh, it just... Uh, it was just very creepy. And um, so let's, let's say right now, uh, maybe talk about what are some of the uh, most common misconceptions about the Inquisition.
1: Well, I think the single most common uh, misconception is that the Spanish Inquisition, which is the most uh, recent, the, late, the last of the Inquisition, last period of the Inquisition, is, is the Inquisition, which it was not. Uh, The Spanish Inquisition was a kind of branch operation. It was the Iberian franchise granted by the Pope to the King and Queen of Spain. Uh, The the actual historical Inquisition operated over a period of 600 years, uh, starting in the early 13th century in southern France and uh, operating in fits and starts all over Western Europe, uh, throughout those six centuries. Uh, another misconception is that this is something confined to a distant period in history, but in fact the Inquisition remained in active existence until the 1800s. Uh, it didn't go out of existence until the 1830s, and uh, the last victim to be executed by the Inquisition didn't die until 1826, which, if you reflect on it, is 50 years after the Declaration of Independence, which is kind of a marker in history of the triumph of the Enlightenment, of egalitarian and democratic ideals over the old order, the old regime in Europe. Uh, half a century after that, they were still uh, murdering people f- f- as thought criminals.
0: Well, and so the, uh, let me see if I have this right, the uh, the Spanish Inquisition, which pe- many people think of as the Inquisition, was a subset of the larger uh, Inquisition or the, that happened over hundreds of years. That's
1: correct. Well, we can start with the, the basic uh, premise that the Inquisition was a formal uh, uh, bureaucracy put into place by the medieval popes. Uh, to make sure that all Christians were the right kind of Christian. The Inquisition consisted of uh, the famous Inquisitors, who were Dominican and Franciscan monks, uh, and they had in their employ uh, constables and guards and scriveners and clerks and, uh, uh, of course, torturers and executioners and jailers. Uh, It was a vast church bureaucracy And it allied itself with the secular authority, with the public government, and uh, when it went into operation, it acted as a kind of parallel police force and parallel court system to the civil courts and the civil constables, uh, and carried out these uh, dragnets, these searches, uh, to try to identify, arrest, and punish uh, so-called heretics, uh, and... This institution operated wherever the uh, Roman Catholic Church enjoyed jurisdiction. Uh, the King and Queen of Spain, by the way, it was the very same King and Queen of Spain who sent Columbus on his voyages of discovery that resulted in the uh, the uh, discovery of the New World. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella applied to the uh, to the Vatican in the 15th century uh, for a, a, an Inquisition of their own. They they wanted that. Church office to set up operations in Spain, uh, and that's how it came to Spain. But it had operated in France and Germany and Italy, uh, and and uh, in many other places around the world.
0: And so, the Inquisitions, or or do you prefer to say Inquisitions, or use it as a singular Inquisition?
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting point. And since you've read my book, you know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the common usage is to say the inquisition in the singular as a single overarching institution, uh, an arm of church government that operated in different times and places over a period of 600 years, but to think of it as one thing. Now, there are some historians, this is another surprise. Uh, You asked me what some of the surprises and misconceptions were. Uh, the, The fact is that Uh, the Inquisition has its apologists and its deniers. And one of the arguments that the deniers make is that uh, we're giving the Inquisition too much credit when we think of it as a kind of a medieval CIA that operated all over Europe. Uh, They argued that it was never a single unitary uh, arm of government. It was, in fact, uh, a, a phenomenon that occurred here and there the Inquisitors showed up and went to work. Uh, And so some. there's at least one historian who argues that we should speak of the Inquisitions in the plural, because there were so many of them. And there are classic periods of the Inquisition. Uh, Historians usually refer to the medieval Inquisition as one thing, and the Roman Inquisition in Italy as a different thing, and the Spanish Inquisition as yet a third thing. Uh, The argument I make in my book is that uh, it was in fact one vast machinery of persecution. It used the same techniques, the same ideology, the same law books, the same instruments of torture. Uh, The title of my book, The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, refers to the standard operating manuals that in fact were published and circulated among the inquisitors across 600 years uh, that instructed them in how to do their job.
0: So there was an overarching uh, manual that, that influenced all of these, and an overarching inquisitorial mindset. And so the thing is, is that this was a religious thing. It was out of the the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. But at the same time, the kings and uh, the noble uh, royalty in these different countries used it to political effect and and so not only was it seeking out what the church labeled as heretics it it was politically uh being used to uh get enemies of the uh, ruling classes That's exactly right and that's
1: that's a very very important point because the inquisition was never as holy and pure and single minded as it was advertised to be uh the original purpose of the Inquisition, as, I, as I've said, was to make sure that Christians were the right kind of Christian, at least as, as far as the Pope saw it. Uh, the first, very first victims of the Inquisition, uh, the target that really called the Inquisition into existence, were the so-called Cathars, also sometimes called the Albigensians. This was a community of Christians in southern France who practiced a form of austere Christianity that we might think of as proto-Protestantism. They looked a lot like uh, contemporary Protestants in some ways. The, the church said, yeah, this is the wrong kind of Christian. We won't tolerate Christians being Cathars. And so they set up the Inquisition to, to put them out of existence. But in every time and place where the Inquisition operated, there's a tremendous temptation to turn this weapon against the uh, enemies. Of the moment, and not just religious enemies, but political and financial enemies too. So I tell the story in my book. It's quite a, a dramatic story about how the Knights Templar, very famous and storied uh, order of the Catholic Church, the warrior monks who who fought in the Crusades, uh, they came under the eye of the King of France, who. Uh, coveted their vast treasury of gold and silver and jewels and money, and he uh, turned to the Inquisition, accused these uh, monks of the Catholic Church of being uh, heretics, and uh, browbeat the Pope into allowing him to use the Inquisition to ruin the Knights Templar, or really to drive them out of existence, and to expropriate their treasure. So his motive was clearly political and financial, and rather than religious, but this machinery of persecution was available for him to use.
0: Yeah, and and we we see that uh, throughout history, and uh, this um, this is out the rabbit hole. KUCI in Irvine, Robert Larson here speaking with Jonathan Kirsch, and we're talking about his book, *The Grand Inquisitor's Manual: A History of Terror in the Name of God*. And so, uh, yeah, Jonathan, you. Uh, one of the reasons your your book so resonated with me was that you clearly elucidated something I vaguely suspected that the Inquisition was not just a horror from the past that we've evolved out of that it has actually inspired later atrocities, serving as somewhat of a blueprint and how have historians been reacting to to that concept that this inspired say you know Nazi Germany and stalinist uh, Russia?
1: Well, I want to be uh, intellectually honest and concede that there are some people who will argue that the Inquisition was uh, a, a phenomenon of a certain time and place, and the fact that other authoritarian regimes happen to use similar uh, tools and techniques uh, is is explained away as uh, just different people coming up with the same idea at different times, but I make the argument that, in fact, uh, you've used the phrase already in our conversation, that there's an inquisitorial mindset, there's a way of looking at the world, uh, which is very appealing to authoritarian regimes, authoritarian rulers. Uh, They're very suspicious of freedom, of diversity, of differences of opinion, they're, they're control freaks in the classic sense. They want everyone to be the same way, and they want everyone to be the way they think they should be. And any variation in thought uh, is, a, is they regard as dangerous and even criminal. Uh, that's an idea that was formalized, institutionalized in the in the Inquisition, and done so so effectively that as other people came along who were not Catholic, not Avowedly religious, uh, they found that this whole uh, machinery of persecution was very useful for their own ends. The two premier examples that I write about in my book, uh, and and I don't want to forget that this can uh, taint a democracy, even the American democracy, we should talk about that as well. But the two hallmark examples are Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, both of them operating in the 20s and 30s uh, using The many of the, literally the same instruments of torture, but beyond that, the same mindset, the same uh, means of control, the same goal of ridding their societies of anybody who dissented. Uh, I I tell the the story in my book uh, that the great historian of the Inquisition, Cecil Roth, published a, a history of the Inquisition in 1937, which is right before the war, right, the Holocaust was building, was in preparation, the Stalinist show trials were going on, uh, the purges of the Communist Party and the, the Russian army. And he felt obliged before the book went to press in 1937 to add a preface in which he warned his readers that his book was not a satire on current events. It was a book about history, uh, because mm-hmm. the similarities between what was happening in Germany and Russia were so striking to to what had happened in uh, Spain in the 15th century that he f- felt he needed to put in a disclaimer.
0: Well, yeah. You you mentioned uh, of course that this could happen also in a democratic republic and so that brings us to uh the uh, contemporary times here uh, so you know over the last few years with the coining of the terms war on terror and unlawful enemy combatants, the euphemisms waterboarding and extraordinary rendition and USA Patriot Act, the legal gymnastics of John Yoo. Some commentators started, you know, drawing comparisons to what was happening here in the U.S., drawing comparisons to Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, and I remember seeing it at the time, over the last few years, in a more primal way, that the atrocities, uh, all, you know, the architects of all of this were consciously or unconsciously drawing from the original source, the Inquisition. So is, uh, is that how you see it? I mean, is there you know, this inquisitorial impulse that is always there, just waiting for the right set of circumstances?
1: Well, that's precisely right. And, I, and that's, that, that is what I believe, and that's what I've argued in my book. Uh, and, and let me explain it. Uh, how it works in the context, or how it has worked in the context of the American democracy, which, after all, is a secular civil state and uh, a state uh, a country blessedly devoted to civil liberty. Even here, we can have moments of excess. I'm not arguing that we ever had or do have an institution like the Inquisition, but there are tools from that inquisitorial toolbox which are sometimes unpacked and used even here. Uh, The examples I use in my book uh, leading up to the War on Terror, which is the single best example, are the Salem Witch Trials, a time when, and and here's the key issue, this is is when and why it happens, when the public attention, uh, public fears are excited by the existence or the suspected existence of a threat, an enemy, especially a hidden enemy, that's when the panic button is hit. That's when people start looking around themselves just as the Inquisitors looked around for heretics. Uh, and we look around and say, who Who among us is doing evil against us? And, w- and once you're uh, in that panic mode, the idea that you would start singling out people, falsely accusing people, uh, becomes much more plausible. In Salem, it was... Uh, the solid citizens, men and women, of Salem Village who were accused by a group of hysterical teenage girls of being witches. And uh, men and women were arrested on these false charges, uh, tried and uh, executed, we would say murdered, uh, because of this panic response to the suspected existence of a satanic cult. Uh, flash forward to World War II. Uh, now, again, we this is a incident of actual physical threat, a, a military attack on the United States by Japan at Pearl Harbor. And in the wake of that, it seemed totally plausible to people, all the way up to the President of the United States and the Supreme Court, to round up every single Japanese American on the West Coast, 110,000 people guilty of nothing, uh, and put them in prison camps for the duration of the war because we feared they were secret uh, traitors and saboteurs and, and spies. Uh, that's the same impulse at work. The Hollywood blacklist and the McCarthy era is another example. And then if you come up to 9-11, which is, like Pearl Harbor, is a terrible national shock and, and, and legitimately agitated our fears, but suddenly uh, we start looking around at anybody who might seem just a little bit different than the uh, what we think of as the average american and we start using some of these techniques uh that were first invented by the inquisitors including so-called waterboarding which is nothing more than what the inquisitors called the ordeal by water a, a form of water torture
0: yeah yeah and are you familiar with the exchange with uh Law professor and advisor to the Bush administration, John Yoo. Oh, yes. See, yes.
1: And I want to say that the new Attorney General, Eric Holder, unlike the, uh, the Justice Department officials and the White House counsel under President Bush, uh, Eric Holder sat in front of the Senate confirmation hearings and said, waterboarding is water torture. It is the torture of the Inquisition. He, those words fell from his lips. Uh, the Bush administration stood on its head to argue by, and now here's another example of the similarities to the Inquisition. The, the Bush administration argued that waterboarding was not torture, it was merely a harsh interrogation technique. Now, what's, what that shows us is an example of using euphemistic language, saying something uh, in nice, uh, pretty terms, uh, to conceal what you're really doing and what you really mean. This, too, is a weapon of the Inquisition, which never referred uh, to burning someone alive at the stake, a form of torturing someone to death with fire. Uh, as death by fire or burning someone alive, they, call, they use a euphemism of their own. They called it an auto de fe, which means an act of faith. Uh, This tendency of not calling something by its rightful name another Orwellian uh, phenomenon uh, is something that goes all the way back to the Inquisition and was borrowed again and again over the years, including by our own American president. Uh,
0: Yeah, and and you mention in the book that uh, Orwell and... uh Kafka. That you know, we we all when when we say something is Orwellian or Kafkaesque, we we all know what that means. But the, they were really inspired by the Inquisition to come up with that uh, type of uh, uh, warning. That
1: that's that's exactly right. Uh, there's something about, and we can look at it from a couple of different points of view. You know, Kafka invented these worlds that were totally self-contained and totally cut off from our sense of reality. He would imagine places and, and, and uh, instruments of torture and, and uh, systems of justice uh, where individuals would be swept up uh, into a crazy world that made no sense, from which there was no escape. Uh, and that's what we mean by Kafkaesque. That's what that adjective has come to mean. Uh, but if you compare what he writes about Uh, to what actually happened, not once, but many times over 600 years under the Inquisition, you you can't help but conclude that he was describing a a fantasy that was based on the reality of the Inquisition, uh, the court that never acquitted anyone. Uh, This is a famous episode in one of Kafka's books, and this was absolutely the case in the Inquisition. Once you were accused of being a heretic, the Inquisition required no, nothing that we would regard as evidence in order to convict the the, the accused it, in fact nobody was ever acquitted of the crime of heresy once they were charged by the Inquisition it was like a machine if you went in one side you're going to come out the other end uh, punished or dead uh, now Orwell's an even more striking example uh, we're often uh, we, we often tell each other that Orwell was uh, like a science fiction writer. He was looking off into the future and writing not about a utopia, but a dystopia, a dysfunctional utopia uh, uh, of something that he thought was coming uh, in the future. But the features that he writes about all came from the past, uh, including the idea of the thought crime, which is the best way to describe heresy. Heresy was nothing more than holding a thought in the privacy of your own mind that the church deemed to be uh, impermissible, a criminal thought. Uh, the use of euphemism to, dis- to conceal what someone is actually doing to another human being is what Orwell described as newspeak. He, he used the phrases you know, love is hate, war is peace. Uh, those kinds of phrases are very reminiscent of, of what the language that was adopted by the Inquisition. And above all, uh, 1984, you know, Orwell's great novel, describes this world in which the government exerts absolute control, a rigid, brutal control over every citizen under its authority. Uh, that's precisely what the Inquisition aspired to do.
0: And would you also say that the uh, creation of, say, the Bill of Rights was in a a response to this, of of knowing the history of the Inquisition, we're going to put something together that will hopefully prevent something like that from ever occurring.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The the Inquisition, among other things, is an example of what can go wrong, terribly wrong, when church and state are, are allied with each other, when the power of the state is put in service of the... Uh, the dogma of the church. That's precisely what the Inquisition was. Uh, bear in mind uh, that the Inquisition maintained a kind of legal fiction that it never put anyone to torture and it never put anyone to death. Strictly speaking, that's true because the Inquisitors, who were uh, monks of the Dominican and Franciscan order, Uh, ran the show. They they determined who would be arrested, who would be uh, tortured, who would be punished, but they never applied the instruments of torture. They called on the local government, the municipal secular government, to send down the public executioner to to carry out the torture and to put people to death. Uh, It was that unholy alliance between church and state that made the Inquisition possible. Uh, When the founding fathers of this country looked back on the old world from which uh, they had escaped or their ancestors had escaped, uh, their first value was to put an end to the uh, unholy alliance between church and state. And that's in the First Amendment uh, to the Constitution. That's the separation of church and state, the wall between church and state. And it was meant specifically and explicitly to prevent uh, what happened in Europe from what from happening here.
0: Yeah, and after reading your book, I that wall between uh, church and state made me feel that wall needs to be a mile high and a mile wide. Yeah. Well, that, I, you know I'm a
1: First Amendment purist in many ways. Uh, you know, the First Amendment uh, protects both freedom of speech but also uh, separation of church and state, and I I, I believe that those Protections should, just as you have said, should be as strong and as broad as possible because the, the, it's a slippery slope if you start lowering the wall between church and state, uh, and, and we know what the worst-case scenario looks like. In a sense, that's what my book is about
0: Yes, and that is the Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God. Jonathan Kirsch, the author, our special guest today here on Out the Rabbit Hole. And I am Robert Larson. And, uh, so, one of the... Uh, let's go, go back into history again here, and in in, into uh, the Inquisition. Um, one of the most disturbing aspects uh, were these... Uh, what did you call it that occurred in Spain, the uh, auto...
1: Auto de fe was the term used to describe the final ultimate punishment of a of an of a heretic. And, and let me walk you through the process.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, it, it sounds so insane and like this nightmare dripped with the mixture of pageantry, religious uh, reverence, and carnival atmosphere. So yeah, walk uh, exactly. us through that. Exactly.
1: It, it was a form of public entertainment. Uh, everything that the Inquisition did uh, between the beginning and the end was done in, pri- in secret, behind closed doors. Uh, at the beginning of a typical tribunal, you know, the, the, the campaign of a particular uh, inquisitor, uh, he would go to the local church and preach a sermon in which he called upon everybody in the community to confess to their heresies if they had any, if they had entertained any her- heretical thoughts. Uh, and if they did confess, they might be pardoned. They, they would still be punished, but they wouldn't suffer death. Uh, if they did not confess when asked to, then they were at risk of being denounced by their neighbors, uh, secretly interrogated, tortured. All of that happened in in secret, uh, and the the rumors of what happened in secret uh, were widely talked about. People lived in terror of the Inquisition. They knew the terrible things were happening, even if they were not allowed to see them, and that reign of terror was really what the Inquisite was the Inquisition's greatest weapon, because they were uh, coercing and intimidating people into behaving the way they wanted them to behave, and believing the way they wanted them to believe, out of fear that the same thing would happen to them. But at the other end of this process, those heretics who refused to confess, and uh, refused to submit themselves to the authority of the Church, would in great numbers be sentenced to die. And the great ceremony at which they were put to death is called an auto de fe. Again, that's a, a Spanish or Portuguese word that a phrase that means act of faith. And this was a grand public spectacle that would uh, take place in a, in, a, in a public square. Scaffolding would be built. Um, bleachers would be built. Great uh, ceremonies would be conducted with uh, trumpeters and heralds and flag bearers. Uh, there would be processions of the nobility and the aristocracy. And then the poor, uh, uh, despised and tortured uh, heretics who were to be put to death would be paraded into the square wearing uh, conical hats and and ludicrous uh, tunics painted with outlandish scenes and they would be led to the platform tied to upright posts and burned alive for the amusement and horror of the public. Uh, these were uh, in, truly public events uh, meant to uh, astound and also terrify the public, but also to amuse the public. Uh, it's like a public hanging. Uh, and these, we have evidence, we have uh, records of, of these events, and they were put on the way you might put on a great public spectacle today. They worked on building the crowd and providing lots of uh, production values, Uh, but at the end of the uh, ceremony, human life was was, uh, snuffed out in the flames of a fire.
0: Yeah, and and when you think about that, how horrific this was, It, it... it sort of explains, and I think you touched on this a little bit in your book, how that the Inquisition is is not always really examined, and it's almost, if it is, it's sometimes in a comedic way, and you have Monty Python, and uh, was it Mel Brooks? Mel Brooks, And, then, Brooke, yeah. and we, we joke about it, because it's almost like too horrible to really take seriously. It's true, and and because
1: we think of it as something that is confined to the distant past, it, it kind of takes, the, it loses its sting. It's something old and musty and, and, and uh, funky. Uh, and, and just as you say, uh, you know, there's a very famous Monty Python skit that people think of, uh, famous scenes from Mel Brooks' movie, A History of the World, Part One, uh, that makes fun of the Inquisition. Uh, and you know, I, I have to say, I, I think it's healthy, it's psychologically healthy, to laugh, to make light of things that we condemn, it's a kind of a moral victory over the things that we despise, to, to, to laugh at them and belittle them. Uh, but there are some things that, um, when you reflect on them, are not uh, very laughable. Yeah. Uh, and this is certainly one example. Uh, there was a huge amount uh, of human suffering, tens of thousands of men and women, and even children. The Inquisition, according to its rules, everything it did was according to its own rules, uh, the Inquisition tortured children as young as seven years old.
0: Yeah, it's just uh, almost uh, mind-boggling. Psychologist uh, Carl Jung had this notion of of the shadow, that that we as individuals and societies and cultures have a dark side, and that if instead of acknowledging it, we project it onto others, it erupts out of us in toxic, horrific ways. Do do you find that useful in explaining the inquisitorial?
1: I, I think it's a very astute point, because... You, you have to confront the fact, and I, and I do it in a, in a slightly different way in my book, you have to confront the fact that the human animal, uh, human beings, are capable of exalted and sublime conduct, and they are capable of uh, appalling and cruel conduct. We can do both things, and it has to come from somewhere. Uh, and, and, and perhaps the, the notion of the shadow is as good as any way of understanding how both of these impulses can exist in the same species. Uh, the example that I use right at the beginning of my book, and I found it so compelling, is that uh, at the precise moment in history where Michelangelo's Pieta, which is a, a exquisite statue of the, the the dying Jesus in the lap of of the Virgin Mary, uh, and beautifully, compassionately rendered a moment of, of great tenderness. And of course, Pietà means pity. Uh, this, at the very same moment that work of art was first put on public display in Rome, uh, the inquisitors were at work in dungeons under the uh, under the street, using the most horrific instruments of torture, which were also the result of human artistry and human invention. I talk about a particular instrument of torture called the pear. Mm-hmm. I won't describe on, on the radio what was done with this horrible thing, but it was. it's not just that it was a cruel instrument of torture, but it was decorated, it was ornamented. And so here you had two human artists, one who could create a work of exquisite and sublime compassion, and another who creates an instrument of torture living at the same time and in the same place uh, that that great contrast that contradiction is just part of human nature and, and we we mustn 't ignore it because we ignore it at our peril
0: yeah yeah the uh, the late science fiction writer philip k dick in in musing about human consciousness and whether androids could ever really be like humans, flipped it around and looked at how we surrender our humanity and become robotic by losing our ability to balk, B-A-L-K. In other words, he asked, what is the process whereby, say, a lowly clerk in Nazi Germany, while typing up a list of people to be executed, never thought to, accidentally on purpose, leave a name off the list and let that person live? Um, have you thought about that? How sure. we become roboticized? I,
1: absolutely, and I and I want to give you an explanation because I think I, I I think I have found it in my research. I'm not I'm certainly not the first one to think of it, not at all. But uh, the one of the things the Inquisition invented and perfected was a psychological ploy that allows people to justify to themselves why they are either participating in or consenting to the persecution of their friends, neighbors, and relatives who fall into the hands of the, Her- of the Inquisition. Uh, they, the uh, Inquisition slandered and dehumanized its victims, called them vermin, cancer, pestilence, or, or all, uh, in the worst case uh, called them inhuman and satanic So as to strip them of their humanity and deny them the natural compassion that human beings feel towards each other. If you look on your victim as something other than human or less than human, it's it's just simply easier to kill them. Now that ploy is exactly, specifically, what Nazi Germany embraced. Uh, It described its terrible victims, the victims of its worst crimes, the Jews as subhumans, nonhumans, uh, likened them to vermin. I, I make the point in my book that uh, the gas used at the concentration camps, Cyclone B, was an insecticide. Uh, it was an industrial insecticide. And so what the, what the Germans were saying is, is that our victims are not human beings. They're, they're vermin. And we're going to get rid of them the same way we get rid of rats and, and lice. Uh, That idea, that strategy, which allows uh, an otherwise decent human being to participate in a crime against humanity, was one of the enduring inventions of the Inquisition, which did the very same to its victims.
0: What is uh, so interesting to me about that is this whole process of where, by you dehumanize your victims, you end up surrendering your own humanity.
1: It's true. And the, I have to say, uh, the, the the people who uh, served the Inquisition, uh, and there was a whole bureaucracy, there were thousands and thousands of people, uh, ultimately we can't let them off the hook quite so easily, nor should we let Nazi war criminals off the hook so easily by uh, explaining away uh, the, the propaganda or relying on the propaganda that was, Uh, uh, offered to them by their leaders, Uh, ultimately the Inquisition was one human being in a locked chamber with another human being, uh, and one human being felt empowered and willing to to inflict pain and even death on the other human being. That's an existential and moral choice that that torturer made or that Inquisitor made. Uh, I, I think ultimately, what our, what religion teaches us, ironically, is that we're responsible for what we do, and we and we have to own up to the moral implications of what we do.
0: And I, I've come across these uh, things recently, where they've people who have been involved in torture. Obviously, we know a victim of torture is going to suffer PTSD, but there are uh, it's also quite often that the torturer discover uh, um, suffers from PTSD and that uh, have you heard about this uh,
1: I'm not personally familiar with that research but I, uh, I, I all I can say is it would it would restore my faith in their inner humanity if they did because I uh, clearly there's a certain deadening of the conscience uh, that goes on in people who convince themselves that it's the right thing to do to apply torture to a fellow human being if they wake up to that uh, how wrong it was, and, and as a result of that, suffer an attack of conscience uh, in the form of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I think that speaks well for their, uh, their sensitivity to, the, to what they've
0: done. Well, the cases I've heard about, it wasn't like the out-and-out sadists. Who, it was those who were sort of involved, maybe were present at, say, places like Abu Ghraib, and, and uh, were sort of drawn into it, and now later are having these feelings. So, um, you know, that that's an interesting um, uh, observation. So you, you brought up uh, the changes with the incoming Obama administration, Eric Holder. Um, God, I'm a little concerned about that, because, you know, it seems as soon as... Obama came into, into office, he undertook some actions that seemed to roll back some of this inquisitorial impulse that had been put in place by the Bush administration, but more in more recent weeks, uh, his Justice Department seems to be offering cover for some of these excesses of his predecessor. Do, are you familiar with that? Well, I am, from? and
1: I, I, I have to say, I, it goes a little beyond what I think of as my competence, but I am an American citizen, so I guess I have the right to my opinion. I, I think that there, in the same way that there was a truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa after the end of apartheid, where uh, it was uh, the decision was made not to prosecute uh, the the brutal people who carried out the policies of apartheid, but tried to achieve reconciliation. I, I mean that may be an overstated example, but I think that's the idea behind the Obama administration, is that he doesn't want, or his administration doesn't want to create the divisiveness of, of, uh, that would follow public trials of, of uh, armed forces personnel who participated in torture. Uh, and the, the other issue is that uh, President Bush bestowed upon him two ongoing wars and a, and a big uh, prison population of people who've been held in prison without being charged for years. Uh, he, that's a tough problem to solve, uh, certainly, uh, within the first what month or so of his yeah. <laughs> tenure, uh, one of the I, I want to say one of the reasons uh, I think he's being held to such a high standard is that people had such high expectations for him. So Obama, uh, people are asking Obama sixty days out, why haven't you fixed all our problems yet? <laughs> So we've got to give them a break.
0: Yeah, well, there were just a couple of things that came out of the Justice Department were a little bit uh, you know, questionable to me, but yeah, we'll give it a little more time. We can't <laughs> but, um, wow, this is such an important book, uh, The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God, and I, I really appreciate you being with us today, Jonathan. Uh, just, uh, you know, the people need to know this history to, um, you know, hopefully not be repeating similar actions.
1: Well, I've been uh, very, very pleased to have the opportunity to chat with you on the phone, and I appreciate that.
0: Um, would it be possible? Do you have the book handy? Could you uh, read the last sentence of the book? I sure could. Let yeah, that just, would be great.
1: Let me just pop to that to that page. Uh, just if you give me a moment.
0: <laughs> okay. It just really just the last sentence just sums it up so perfectly. Why this book is necessary.
1: Uh, well, let me give you uh, just to complete the thought. Uh, yeah, if yeah. a moment of reflection on the sorry history of our of the Inquisition stays our hand, we will have achieved some measure of moral justice.
0: Yeah, that's it, and that was it just <laughs> as disturbed as I got reading the book and all. You know, reading the summation and you know the final uh, uh, few pages there, especially that last paragraph, that last sentence. It it really made the whole process of going through this worthwhile, and why we need to know this history. It, um, thank you so much for putting the book together and being with us today. It's been
1: my pleasure, and thank you.
0: All right, uh, talking to you again sometime. All I'll right, I look forward to it. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. All right, yes, that's uh, Jonathan Kirsch, and uh, again, the book, The Grand Inquisitor's Manual, A History of Terror in the Name of God. If you do not know this history, you need to know it. Check this book out. All right, that's going to have to wrap up the show here. Uh, Before we go, I'll quickly remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me uh, some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's uh, myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. hole. And uh, let's see, next week on the show, my special guest will be Carl Lemarx and uh, he uh, is going to take us on a journey where we left off with, uh, Anthony Peake talking about consciousness and uh, all of that wild stuff about what is reality. And he's got some new ideas about this. And we'll be talking with him next week about that, Carl Lamarx. And uh, so thanks for listening. And Kyle will be up in just a couple minutes uh, with his uh, excellent music show, Things That Are Square. And let's see. I'm going to have to leave you with some... Good music here. What what do we want to do? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, we had some Ike Riley assassination uh, starting off the show after our opening music, and I think we'll go with some more of that. So this is Robert Larson saying I'll be talking to you next week here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.